as I've helped the plant Rise City Church right in the heart of Gresham, I have seen God move in ways that I never dreamed of. I've watched as young adults were willing to sleep in their cars just to be part of the movement. I've watched as fathers baptize their entire family, literal generations getting saved. I've seen scruffy-headed teenagers grow into men of God, leading this next generation in our city into a brighter future than I ever imagined when I first walked these streets. This has been the kind of move of God that you only hear about often other stories of other places. But it's not happening in some other place. It has been happening right here in our city. Hearts are being awakened. Lives are being restored. Trajectories are being altered because Jesus is moving in Gresham as it is in heaven. Oh, oh yeah. I've never, this is first time in eight years that I've ever walked up to applause and I'll, I'll receive that for me. Not, not Nolan, that's not Nolan's, he, that's not the video, okay? Uh, so we're, we're entering in the series called Win This City, so I want you to do a couple things. One, I want you to grab your Bibles, turn to Acts 17. Second, we actually, we've never done this, but we're doing it today. We are going to class and so we got notes for you to fill in. If that is helpful for you, follow along. I think it's going to help you retain. If that is not your jam, just put it, put it below your seat. No big deal. But we, what we've been doing is we've been looking at this idea of what does it mean to be missionaries? And so week one, we looked at this idea that we are all missionaries. We are God's, as the church, we are God's plan A. And one of the things I want to invite you to do on your way out, you're going to see there, there's a big win this city felt banner uh, when you walk out to the left, and then you're going to see a giant map. And next to the map, there's three stickers, okay? There's one that represents where you live, there's one that represents where you work, and there's one that represents like a third space, a coffee shop or a park that you like to spend a lot of time. I would like for you to grab one of those stickers and place it on the map. And what we're going to see is we have all the potential for gospel saturation already. We, we see blanketed over this map is, is neighborhoods where there are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus living throughout, spending time throughout, going to school, working. And, and it's a visual for us to understand we are the missionaries to this city. Last week, we, we looked at this idea of expectant prayer. Would we be a people marked by faith that pray expectantly that when we pray, God will move? That, that he wants his kingdom to break forth. That he wants to see your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors come to faith in him. And what we're going to look at this week is we're going to look at four cultural shifts we must understand to reach our neighbors. And so we're, we're looking from an academic lens as missionaries, we need to understand our culture. We need to understand the city in which we find ourselves, in which we live. And so we're going to do this by, we're going we're to look at Acts chapter 17, and it's the story of the Apostle Paul. And those of you who are not familiar with the Apostle Paul, he, he went, he was one of the first founders of the church. He got radically saved after persecuting the church, and then he went from city to city, and what did he do? He planted churches. He reads people with the gospel. But it's incredible what, how he starts. He studies the culture. He understands it. So we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to work our way through our culture and how we respond with the gospel. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are preparing? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. See, Paul shows up and he actually studies the culture he's trying to, trying to reach. Look at these verses. It says, his spirit was provoked within him. He actually cared. He saw that the city was full of idols. He saw what their lives were built around. He reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. This is every day with those who happened to be there. So he preached both in religious gatherings and everyday life. He was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. He preached the gospel, not religion. This is why they were so confused. They're like, who's this, who's this Jesus you're talking about? What's this resurrection that you're talking about? I perceived in every way that you were very religious. He had compassion on their confusion. He doesn't start out with condemnation. You, you hear, he, he's building this common ground where he's like, no, they're confused. But he has a compassion to actually speak to it. It says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, he entered into their reality. He says, no, who are you worshiping? What are your idols? What does it look like? And so for us as followers of Jesus, as missionaries, we need to understand the worldview of our culture. A worldview is how we interpret things, how we see things like marriage, how we see things like politics, how we see relationships, how everything happening. It's the lens in which we work through, and we need to understand why. So that we can speak the story of Jesus, the gospel, in a way that answers the deepest longings of our culture. We, we are studying not just so we can say, oh, I know this, or I know all their flaws. No, we're studying so that we can be people who actually speak the gospel, who actually declare the, the power of Jesus to people's lives. And so we're going to look at these four cultural shifts that we must understand to reach our neighbors. A lot of this is rooted and the writings of a guy named Mark Sayers. And, uh, and so he wrote a book called Disappearing Church where he, he looks at the cultural shifts that are happening. And so, and so they're just kind of reworded a little bit for, for our context. But let, let's work our way through. Shift number one, my experience defines ultimate truth and reality. What, what I go through, that becomes the new definition of what is true and what is moral. So N Nancy Piercy uh, she's an author, and she talks about how there's these two levels of truth. Level one is historically held truth for everyone, right? So it's things like science uh, and facts and objective conclusions. And then there's level two, which is subjective private conclusions, okay? So it's things like uh, my experiences and my desires and my preferences and my feelings. And how it's typically been is we say, okay, this is foundational reality. We all agree on these kind of things. This is what truth is. And then it's supported by, but my experience, 
my, de- my desires, how it fits into that, my preferences. And so, and so you experience these things, you know these are true, and then you back it up by, by what you've gone through, okay? Now, what's happened is there's been this flip upside down of these two. And now the foundational truth is what is my experience, what are my desires, what are my prefer- preferences and my feelings, and that is what is foundational to our reality. And then what we do is we find my science to back it up. We find my facts, my history, my truth, my conclusions. I mean, have you seen this over the last two years? It's insane to me. You're like, well, look at the data. And people are like, well, what, what, what data, right? How are you interpreting it? And, and we, we've, well, you know, it's gone from two to 20. Like, and so some people are like, man, there's an 18, 18, you know, numerical increase of 18. And others, it's gone up a thousand percent, you know? And so we, we take these, we, we pick and choose. We choose our reality. And what's happened is this has resulted in two things. One, we have thrown away traditional sources of morality and meaning. There used to be a day in the eight, in, in, even in our culture and community where the words of scripture meant something, where, where religious writings had weight to how we should behave and what, it, and what we value, but they've been replaced by experiences, desires, preferences, and feelings. We, we've thrown away traditional sources, so you can no longer say to someone, like you, you try to say to someone, well, the Bible teaches, and they just kind of laugh at you right? They're like, really? Like you follow that book written by people 2000 years ago? Like how archaic are you? And then we go through and, and even those who are religious, even those who maybe are uh, seeking to follow after God or a part of a church, they say, I believe in God, but I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to some, some church and having some old fashioned scripture tell us, tell us what to say. No self has been elevated above God. And so Western culture, we try to keep the good aspects of Christianity, things like morality and equality and justice, while we throw away its costs, its commitments, and its restraints. Uh, this is what Thomas Jefferson did. Uh, it, he, he's famous for taking his Bible. He went through the Gospels. And anytime he would come across a teaching of Jesus or a story about a miracle uh, that he didn't like, he would cut it out. And then if he found something he did like, he would then cut that out and he pasted it into a new journal. So he had a, 40, a 41 page Bible. It was all the things he liked, right? And like, tell me we don't do that. You know what I'm saying? Like that is, that's why you put a bumper sticker on your car. I like this one, right? That's why we have our coffee mugs, you know? You know like we choose what we want and because we have thrown away traditional sources of morality and meaning. And we're feeling this and we're seeing this. The second uh, results is that morality and truth, it comes down to who has the winning narrative. I don't know if you've seen this or observed. Like, we're, it, we're all moralists, but we choose what morals we want. You can't tell me what to do with my body, but I can tell you um, how to treat animals, right? You can't tell me who, like, what context sex is okay, but I can tell you not to go to SeaWorld, right? It's this morality where we pick and we choose. On social media, everybody is a moralist. They're deciding what their morals are. And as church leaders, like we, it, we have to be able to speak into these things and to push back and say, no, no, like this is a truth. And the problem is we become so unstable in what is true and real because it's constantly changing. Have you seen this? This is why people can't answer simple questions. This is why when you ask someone, what is a woman? 
No, it, it's it, like, I need you to understand this. It's not because they don't know what a woman is. It's because they're so overwhelmed with, with what, what, what is the narrative happening right now that they don't want to lock into anything. And, and we've done this. We've all done this. Like we pick and choose where other people are doing this, but look, we're all doing this. We're all selecting our truth and the things that we hold on to and the things that we, we build upon. And we say, my data, my science, my truth, my experience. And we've seen this shift in our culture. And so as a church, we have to be able to speak into this, not with condemnation. That's not what Paul does. He speaks to it with compassion, but he brings clarity and conviction. Recently, my wife and I, we were on, a, we were on this boat trip, right? And so it's one of those big boats, and there's like, you know, 50 people on it, and, you know, big platform. I, I, I don't know boats. I couldn't describe it, but we're going on water, right? And, and you could go to the back of the boat, and you go up to the top of the boat. You know, that, that's all I know. It floats. It's on the way. I was good at that point, right? But it was hilarious as people would walk around, like, because, the, like, the boat's moving, and it was just so unstable. And, like, every time, like, and you, you would walk towards someone, and they would all, like, terrified, put their hands up, like, like you're this drunk person, <laughs> you know, we're just, like, stumbling you know, like towards them, right? Okay. Everybody did the same thing. Everybody did the same thing as they would walk through. They would find the rail, they would wander around and they'd find the rail and they would grab onto it. And they could, there was stability. Why? Because the rail was actually attached to something foundational. This is what we're longing for right now. This is what God's word is. It is, it is attached to the, the person of Jesus. It's what draws us in. And as Christians, we should be the rail. We should be so deeply attached to God's word that, that there's a foundational securing truth. Because, look, you're going to read the Bible, especially if you're new. You're, you're new to Christianity. You're like, man, I come to church. I, I love it. I love the snacks, and I love the swag, and, I, and in worship, I'm into, and people are so friendly and nice. And then you're going to open your Bible, and you're going to start reading the teachings of Jesus, and you're like, I don't know how I feel about that. Can I tell you something? That is a great moment, because that is a moment for you to walk in obedience and submit to his authority and his truth, not your perceived reality. You should get uncomfortable reading the Bible. There should be things where you're like, I, like that, I, don't, I don't like that. Good. Because you didn't make you and you didn't create reality, so submit and obey to it. This is what it means. We need to come under these things. We need that rail to hold on to, to stabilize ourselves when everything around us is shaking. And the word of God, it is stable. It is steadfast for thousands of years. And we, our culture, it, we are being tossed by the waves to and fro to where we don't even know what's real anymore. Here's the second shift. Traditional structures have let us down. Therefore, they must be deconstructed and destroyed. This is why you hear this word deconstruction over and over, okay? And when I say traditional structures, I'm going to lean into things like marriage. We've seen a, 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 this mass wave of divorce over the last handful of decades. And, and people are like, no, it's let us down. So, so they're moving away from it. But primarily, what, what that traditional structure is, it, they're, they're speaking to church and religion, okay? To the general Western person, religion, it's old-fashioned, useless, and it's actually dangerous. Many people, we start to believe, no, we can, we can, can create our own 
our own source of faith. And so we're moving away from institutions like church because we believe all authority is bad. And, and the truth is the stories that we hear in the news, right? What, what, what do we hear about churches? It's, it's stories of abuse and scandal and failure and collapse. I, I think about my wife's dad, my father-in-law. So he, he is an uh, atheist, wants nothing to do with God. He was a homicide detective, and he cared a whole lot more about golf and poker than anything to do with church. But I remember him coming to me a handful of years ago because he lived in Seattle, and he's like, hey, man, what do you think about this Mars Hill church? Like, in the collapse that's happening. I'm like, that's, the, that's what you hear? Like, that's the one thing you know about church? Because it was all over the news. As soon as there is a collapse or a scandal, there's movies made about the abuse in the Catholic Church. Just this week, a documentary on Hillsong came out. I haven't seen it. I don't know the first thing about it, but I, but I know it's not in a good light. You, you try to talk to academics and philosophers about faith, and they bring up people like Ravi Zacharias, who was this voice but was abusing people, and it's over and over. And what's the result? People no longer trust or rely on church. There, there's been abuses. It, it, it's moved from, hey, church is just part of culture and what you do, to where uh, when I was growing up, church was tolerated, right? Oh, that's cute. Now it, it must be eliminated. Now, it, now it's looked at down upon, right? It's kind of like when I first moved to Portland. So I moved to Portland in 2005, and I moved from California. And people would ask me where I'm from, and I was like, I'm so excited to tell them, Right? <laughs> The Sunshine State, we have beaches and mountains in Yosemite. They're going to love this. They're going to be so happy. And, and, and it did not take me long <laughs> to where that answer changed. You know what I'm saying? Where are you from? Uh, Northeast Portland. <laughs> Been there for a little while. I, was, I don't know. Right? Why? Because of something I did? No. Not because of something I did. Because of what the people before me did. Because of what they were experiencing. Have you noticed this? Right? Like, I used to be excited to tell people, like, what do you do, right? And I'd be like, I'm a pastor, right? Do you know how awkward that conversation gets so quickly? Now, I, I don't lie. I'm just very creative now. I lead a nonprofit organization. People are like, oh, <laughs> lovely, right? Or if that goes bad, I'm a graphic designer, you know? What, like, what, what, whatever it is, right? This is how we feel when we talk about going to church. Some of you guys start posting about church. Some of you are new to church, and you talk about it with your family, and they're like, just you wait. Just you wait. Why? Because of the wounds of the past. Because of failures that have, that have happened. And we have to be a voice of compassion and understanding. One that actually hears the pain and hurt and suffering and responds with humility, not pointing to ourselves, and not pointing to our church, but pointing to Jesus. Because at some point, our church will let you down. Right? Some of you don't nod that hard, okay? Like, relax, right? <laughs> Tell me about it, okay? But you know who won't? Jesus won't. That's why, as a church, we have to be built on the Savior. That's what we build around. Because it's like at some point, when enough failures and abuses and cover ups, when they pile up, it can no longer be labeled a scandal. It needs to be called for what it is a toxic church culture. And we need to repent of that. There's some of you in this room that you were so hesitant to walk through these doors. Like, I know, I know it because of what you endured, because what you experienced in another church community. Man, can I just say from the bottom of my heart, I am so sorry for what you've gone through. That is wrong, and that is not the way of Jesus. 
And we need to be a church that actually listens to people. We need to be a church that doesn't just in defensiveness say, well, no, 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 blah, blah, blah. Like, no, no, we would be compassion. We would be filled with compassion and humility and understanding. I, I got an email about a year ago from a gal who was coming to our church and was going through a situation. And, and this is what she says. I just want you to hear it. She says, I recently joined a support group of women for women of faith in emotionally and spiritually abusive relationships. And I've learned so much. One thing that has stood out to me again and again as I've heard other women's experiences is how incredibly lucky I am to have felt the church's support and love as I walk through this process. Often women of faith have a very different experience. Many are covertly shunned and shamed, and some are publicly excommunicated from their churches. I have never felt any of that, and I'm really grateful. You know, in one sense, I'm so encouraged reading an email like that. I'm like, yeah, that's how the church should respond as you walk through this process. But on the flip side, I'm also enraged because why is that people's experience? Like, why are we covering things up? Why are we not hearing? Why are we not listening? We have to build a church that tells a different story. A church that is built around the power of the spirit, not the power of personality. A church that is built on the person of Jesus, not people who will let you down. A church that is guided by the word, not hijacked by political agendas. This is the kind of church we need to be. A church that actually listens to the abused who feel powerless, not protecting the abusers because they have power. We need to be a people of Jesus marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That is the church of Jesus, and that is what our culture needs. That is why people hate you when you say you're a follower of Jesus. That is one of the reasons people reject in those moments. And rather than getting defensive, And would we humble ourselves and point him to the Savior and say, yeah, I'm sorry for what you've gone through. And yes, I'm sorry how I let you down. But thank goodness our life is not built upon people or organizations or even churches. Our life is built upon the foundation of that cross. And that's what it means to be a church. Here's the third shift. The digital revolution and promise of progress has started They've both, they've started to fail us, right? See, we believe the world, it's going to get better with progress, technology, and education. That's where we're at. No, it's going to get better. The philosophy of our time is as we move away from this dumb idea of God and religion, we're going to get smarter. We're going to solve our own problems as a culture. So all we need is education and technology and scientific discovery and progress. And this is the direction we're moving. And then 2020 hit, right? And we're like, I don't, I don't know if this is working out super well. Like, I, I don't know if you, like, I was pretty ignorant come January, February of 2020. Like, we were planning our grand opening for March 22nd, 2020, Right? If you don't remember what happened, that's good. That's trauma. It block, you know, the, the mind blocks trauma, right? And I just look back and I'm like, what? Like, I'm like, no, like that, that's over there, right? That's in other countries and other places. And like we've advanced scientifically. We've advanced medically with our edu- Like we, we've moved beyond that. So, and then 2020 hit and it all fell apart. And then 2021 came 
and it just like reinforced, like, hey, just in case you missed that, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I don't feel like we're doing too great so far in 2022. I was putting my son to bed the other night, and he looked at me and he goes, hey, dad, when I get old, I just don't want to be, I just don't want people looking at me and say, hey, that guy lived through World War III. I'm like, why is my eight-year-old wrestling with these kind of things? Like, it's starting to fail us, am I right? Like, this lie, this facade. Here, here's the second piece of it. The, the digital revolution will make us feel more connected and fulfilled than ever. That was the second lie that we believed, right? You know what the number one thing that is going to keep you from deep relationships with each other and a deep intimacy with God it's that small little device sitting in your front pocket or in your purse. I'm, it's supposed to be this incredible technology, right? Like all the information in the history of time, like is in your pocket. <laughs> what, what song do you want to listen to? What album, right? What movie? What, inf what information do you want? It's all right there. And it's, it's supposed to. We thought technology and social media, we thought they were going to connect us closer to each other, but instead it's actually tearing us apart. You see these moments where people are gathered together, and there's five, six, seven, eight of them, right? And there's just this glow. Rather than them looking to one another and having conversation, there's this glow on their face as, as they are actually being disconnected from each other by a device that was supposed to draw us into deeper relationship. See, this lie is collapsing. Our private worlds, they're in crisis. Things like anxiety, loneliness, bullying, addiction, obesity, they're on the rise. Like, do you realize that life expectancy, for the first time in a long time, has actually taken a downward turn because of things like heart disease and obesity? The, we were supposed to move beyond these things. This is what Jonathan Sachs says, and this quote's in your notes and it's on the screen, but it, it's so good. I just want you to see it. The results lie all around us. The collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family, the fraying of the social bond, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interests demand something larger, the loss of trust in public institutions, the buildup of debt, whose burden will fall on future generations and the failure of a shared morality to lift us out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, relativism. We know these things, yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. You know when Jonathan Sachs wrote that? 2014. seems like a lifetime ago, and yet it speaks so true to this collapse that we're experiencing. Now, I'm going to be a little candid here. Um, this is why I, I spent a lot of time listening to other churches. I want to know what the pulse is. I listen to church consultants. I want to know what, 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 what churches like across our nation in particular are going through and talking about. Um, this is why digital church drives me crazy. Because discipleship cannot be digitalized. You understand that? It is relationship. 
And so I just see these church consultants and they're like, look, man, if, you're, if you don't go digital and you don't do everything online, like you're, not gonna, like you're no longer gonna reach people and you're gonna collapse and you're gonna die. And I'm like, oh, tell, what's happening to these churches that are doing that? Well, I mean, they're collapsing and dying, but you know, it's okay. Like we have the solution, right? Can we look at history? Like the church is all, you realize the church is always like 10 years behind in trends, right? You know, like techno music is gonna hit the church pretty soon here. You know, it's gonna be dope, right? We're always 10 years behind. And for some reason, digital is one of those things where like, hey, you know, it's collapsed, it, it results in a disconnect, and it hasn't worked for anybody, but, but it might work for us, right? Like, maybe. No, and like, we, and again, look, we stream online on Sundays. We do. Because there are people who, uh, for various reasons, health reasons, uh, lifestyle reasons, that cannot connect with us on on a Sunday, right? And so we're going to continue to do that. But here's what we won't do. We're not going to push to some kind of form of online community and connection. No, we are a church that gathers. We gather under the word. We gather side by side. When I'm out of town, I love that we have church online. I do. You know, I can sit and I can critique Nolan's sermon from a thousand miles away. It's amazing. You know, I'm like, oh, bro, it's like tucking your shirt, you know, like, (laughs) okay. I love it. It's wonderful. But we are created for human relationship, not digital connection. And so as a church, all these churches are, they're all like, hey, we're going going this way. This is what we need to do. And we're like, sweet, we'll go this way. And we're, we're going to continue to be a, a church that meets in person and has to figure out our parking lot situation because people are longing for community and connection because that's what we're created for. Fourth, lastly, last shift I want to talk about is we are not becoming secular. We are becoming pagan. And let me explain this. Leslie Newbegin, theologian, says we are not becoming a secular society that has erased God but rather a pagan society with many gods. We are, we are all worshipers. And we thought, no, we're, just, we're, we're disconnecting from the idea of worship and religion. That's not what's happening. We're picking new religions. You want to know two of them that I see more than, more than ever? You know what one of those religions is? Politics. And some of us, we need to be convicted of that. Because we have placed our political parties and agenda higher than our savior. And we connect deeper with people with same political ideologies than people who are bought with the same blood of Christ. And that is a problem. That is an idol that needs to be smashed. But here's, an, and, and here's another one, personal enhancement. This is, this is an idol that we worship. Personal enhancement, it be, it's become the ultimate path to meaning. What we have now is the gospel of life advancement and life enhancement. It's about how you get better. And so things like money, sex, power, family, comfort, and beauty, they've captured our hearts and minds, and we are idol factories. And we say, this is what my life is built around. This is, it's, and it's no different. It says, Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. These are the things that we're trusting in. These are the things that we're turning to. And we're asking questions. Where do I find happiness? Where do I find joy? Where do I find fulfillment? And we say, it's my beauty. It's my family. It's my reputation. It's my work. It's my relationship. My wife and I, we were walking down this beach. And and it was like every 50 to 100 yards, we'd see somebody standing in front of the waves. 
while two or three other people at different angles were taking pictures after pictures of them, right? And it wasn't like something where like, oh, they're models. You're like, no, nah, they're, they're not, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I found myself, sorry, that's not very compassionate. I found myself, <clears throat> I'm like, why, like, why are they sacrificing this moment, right? They're not laughing and playing in the waves. They're not engaging with their friends. And, and what I realized is this is the sacrifice that their God demands, that they would sacrifice the moment for people's praise and likes and adoration. They would sacrifice relationship for perceived enjoyment. And this is what happens when we start to worship idols. And you guys, this happens even in the church, that we are people who use church as a means of personal fulfillment and satisfaction rather than saying, like, I'm a part of church because I'm, I'm called to obedience or for the good of our city or for the good of others or for the glory of God. We come to churches for our own personal fulfillment. And you know how I know that? Because when something becomes challenging, we just leave. Or there's something we don't like, we just leave. Look, you sh- can, I, can I just tell you, like, when you come on Sunday, like, there should be moments where you're deeply offended. There's just, there just are. Now, I get some of you are like, offend me. I love it. You know, like, I love the conviction, all right? I'm not talking to you, okay? You got, you got that, right? <laughs> but there's some of you that, like, you're going to leave because something that's preached. And, and I'm not talking about personal opinion. I'm talking about expounding of the scriptures. And you're like, man, I don't, I don't like how that rubs with my new reality in my life. If you go to a church that never offends you, I think there's probably a problem there because the gospel is offensive. <laughs> We're sinners dead in our sin and need of a savior. That is a, an offensive truth, but it's what we need because Jesus is not only our savior, he's also our Lord. And we need to follow him with everything. He, doesn't, he, he not only gets to shape what we believe, he also gets to shape how we live how we deal with our money, what our relationships look like, how we treat our neighbors, how we walk through forgiveness. It's a, it's a holistic call. It's not just about believing certain doctrines. Yes, those are foundational and those are key, but it's a life following deep after Jesus. This is why, you know, in, you know in the scriptures, the word Christian is only used three times. And the first one is an insult. They're like making fun of them, those Christians. And so the Christians were like, sweet. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be called little Christ. But it's only used three times. You know what the paradigm in the scriptures is? Used 269 times? Disciple. It's not about gathering and just being a church. It's about following after Jesus in radical obedience, no matter the cost. And this is what we follow after. So we look at these four shifts. My experience is my truth. Structures can't be trusted. Progress is failing. We're not secular, but pagan. It's like overwhelming. Am I right? It's like, dang, like, okay, like, did I take all the notes? Did I say all the things? Like, I got this, right? It feels over. You know what this presents? An opportunity. Where the truth of Jesus and his word is so refreshing and convicting. Because you guys, as the church, we're the only ones who offer hope sustained, lasting hopes. We're the only ones who can provide answers to the crisis of our culture and our identity. And, and what does Paul do? 
He tells them the gospel story. He says, I see this unknown God. He says, let me tell you, tell you about him. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Like, you can't make your gods. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, he is the source of it all. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allot, uh, determined allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and we have our being. And even as some of your own prophets have said, we are indeed his offspring, saying that is true, Jesus Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. We need to stop just making idols in our minds and our hearts. They're not going to satisfy us. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You guys, what we need when we're faced with a culture like this is we need to know the gospel so deeply, so intimately. We need to have our lives built upon the gospel so foundationally that when we hear questions and confusions, we are able to respond like Paul does with gospel clarity. There is a precision to it. We need gospel fluency. We need to be a people who speak the gospel. What is gospel fluency? We need to become so fluent in the gospel that we know how to speak the life, hope, and truth into the everyday challenges and questions of life. That we would become so fluent in the way of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the ethics, and the story of Jesus. That's what we need to be. People who our own lives, our own hearts are deeply soaked and saturated with the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God created the world. That's our foundational reality. Our foundational identity starts with God. We have to understand it's him first, not us first. That's our origin story. We are in his image and relationship with him. And when the people around you, they're experiencing an existential crisis of who they are, And why they exist and what is the meaning? Can you authentically articulate that they are created in God's image? That they were knit together in their mother's womb? That that, that is truth rooted in the foundation of creation. We have to know that. When we feel like everything is collapsing around us, we need to be able to speak to that. You know, over and over, like I always am reminding, every chance I get, I remind my little girl Nova, every single thing about her is beautiful. Like her little button nose, like it's beautiful. Nova, your nose is so beautiful. Her, her straight brunette hair, her knobby little knees. I tell him, Nova, your, knee, your knees are beautiful. Her freckled, spotted cheeks. Nova, your freckles are beautiful. Her gorgeous green eyes. And she's beautiful because her daddy says so. And you know why I say that over and over? Because one day soon here, 
the world is going to come at her with a counter-narrative. And her nose is going to be too small or too big. And her hair is not going to be the right color. Or it's going to be too straight. Or it's going to be too short. Or it's going to be too long. And her knees are going to be too knobby or too plump. And her freckles are, are, are going to be a distraction. And I want her in those moments to be able to look the world in the face and just tell it to shut the hell up. <laughs> I know I'm beautiful because my daddy says so. That is the, the creation narrative that we would be so deeply rooted in being created in God's image. And our identity is in that, that when the, these lies come at us, we can fight them off with who we are in Christ. That is why we need the gospel. But the gospel also says that there's a fall, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we're all feeling the effects of this separation because sin separates. It separates us from God and it separates us from each other. What's happening in our world? I'll tell you what's happening in our world is the fall. The fall is happening. Sins, sin has happened. Like we think it's all about like, oh, we're bad and we need to be more good. And, and our definition of good and we need to just walk through. No, we are dead. That's our problem. We are spiritually dead, and we cannot undead ourselves, right? How many of you guys watch the, the show Walking Dead, right? Okay, don't admit that in church. Like, you can't, okay? <laughs> Goodness gracious, right? Okay, so I'm watching The Walking Dead, right? And they, 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 there was this moment where I was like, this is like, this is such a beautiful portrayal of the gospel. They're trying to figure out why they're all turning into zombies, right? And they're like, what's happening? Is it something? And they, they reach a moment where they realize that it's something, it's a sickness that lies within all of them. It's not something that's happening from the outside. It's something that's happening within. This is what we need to understand. The problem of the world is not out there. The problem of the world is right here. I'm what's wrong with the world. You're what's wrong with the world. But when we can acknowledge that, we can find a savior to help a savior to heal, a savior to restore. This is why we need Jesus. Every other philosophy, religion, ideology is all about bad, making bad people good. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That's the gospel. And we need that. We, we need that re, re, renewal and restoration. And that moves us into redemption. That Jesus, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one can come to God except through him. And this is why our church will always ever only be Jesus. We will preach Jesus. We will declare Jesus. We believe that he is our salvation. We believe that he is the way. And we have to understand the completed work of Jesus. What we're doing as a church is trying to deconstruct the idols of our hearts and others' hearts and remove them and replace them with Jesus. Our hearts are idol factories. We are worshipers. And if only our hearts would become addicted to Jesus and overwhelmed with Jesus. This is why we need fewer how-tos and more he's done. You know what I'm talking about? Like we are a how-to society. We need the gospel of Jesus' finished work, not more strategy for improving our own lives through strategy and effort. How to fix your marriage. How to win friends and influence people. How to unbleep your life, right? 
This is, that's why these are the best-selling books. We long, we long for this. No, we need to understand that it's what he's done. Only Jesus can fix your marriage because you need a marriage that's built on forgiveness, grace, and loving self-sacrifice. Only Jesus can build a family of eternal friendships. Only Jesus is the true friend to the unwanted and unloved. And only Jesus can unbleep your life, ladies and gentlemen. That is what the call is. That's the redemption and ultimately the restoration that we, in Jesus, we have eternal hope. See, what Paul is speaking to is understanding that the deepest longings of the human soul are only satisfied in God. We can't pull anything else out. So since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so Paul, he speaks to these deepest questions with compassion and with clarity because he's not converting people to a religion. He's calling them into a relationship with a savior. This is the opportunity we have, church. It's incredible. And we should not stand back on the sidelines yelling about all the things we're mad and angry about and how everybody's doing everything wrong. We should listen and we should understand. And our response is not to affirm. Our response is to point people to love and grace and peace and joy and steadfastness and hope that we have in Jesus alone. And it's incredible how this story ends because it says when Paul finished, some mocked him because he talked about resurrection. They laughed and they scoffed. And it tells us that Paul left. But you know what happened after he left? It says, but some joined him and believed. That's what it means to be a missionary. That we would see and understand our culture so that we can respond with a contextualized gospel and speak to the deepest needs and longings and wounds of the human heart. Let's pray. Jesus would you always make much of you? You are who we need. You are what we need. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. Lord, I, I pray that mornings like this morning would open our hearts and minds intellectually engaged to see what's happening around us, not so that we can mock or laugh or scoff, but so that we could be marked with deep compassion and respond with clarity and conviction around who you are and what you've called us to, Lord. Would we be a church that sees our city transformed as we all rise up as disciples, becoming more and more clear around the gospel in our own lives and our own hearts so that we can then speak it to others. Pray this in your name. Amen.